Hello everyone, it's Randy Kim, host and producer of the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. Thank you for joining me for my first episode of season two. For this season, we are exploring the theme 1975 and interviewing 1.5 to second generation Southeast Asian American folks here in Chicago and across the U.S. Special thanks to Lawrence and Argyle for being a sponsor for this season. For the first episode, I sat down and talked with Vietnamese American author Tan Ha Lai. She currently resides in New York City. She is an award-winning New York Times best-selling author, which includes her books Inside Out and Back Again and Listen Slowly. She recently released her third book, Butterfly Yellow, a fiction book about a young Vietnamese girl in search of a younger brother in America after the Vietnam War. The book recently received critical acclaim. I spoke to Tan Ha Lai about the creative process in writing this book and what it meant for those who experienced the hardships of the refugee journey and the assimilation process in America. Tan Ha also shares her personal experiences as a child refugee, being the youngest of nine children raised by a single mother and growing up in deep South America. I greatly enjoyed my time speaking with Tan Ha as she speaks with great candor and thoughtfulness about her personal journey and as a writer. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Hello, this is uh, Randy from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. I am so excited to talk to my next guest. Uh, she is an award-winning author. She has released her third book called Butterfly Yellow. So I would love to welcome uh, Tanha Lai. So how are you, Tanha? Hi, good morning. Thank you so much. I am speaking from New York, and we are actually having a delightful afternoon. So I'm great. Oh, that's <laughs> great. So how's everything in New York and what are you in New York for? I live here. You know, I, uh, I basically live in a little cave in New York and I get to go out once in a while to walk my dogs and then I'm back in my little cave because I'm on deadline again. So oh, wow. um, that's what I do. <laughs> that is awesome. So I was wondering if you can uh, uh, introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Peng Ha Lai. I am the author of Inside Out and Back. I won the National Book Award and a Newbery Honor. And then I followed that up with Listen Slowly, which I will be in the Schomburg area in February. It's called Butterfly Yellow. And uh, it's a story that takes a look at trauma and how to heal um, this trauma through the use of humor. And it's all about war because I live through it. So that's what I do. I write about war. Thank you so much for sharing that. And also, I recently got your book, Butterfly Yellow, which is a tremendous book. And I feel like this book has already gained a lot of traction among, uh, among so many uh, folks. Uh, we're seeing the emergence of Vietnamese American authors, such as Ocean Bong, uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, and just several more that I can't name off the top of my head. But those are, yeah, there's, so it's clearly emerging. And so how are you feeling uh, releasing this particular book, especially in a time where we're starting to hear more stories coming out from 1.5, the second generation uh, Vietnamese American folks. You know, I'm excited to have this book out because what I really focus on is, yes, it deals with trauma, but I focus on not on the boat trip itself, which is traumatic. I focused on how she how does she come out of that? How does she heal from that? So my story is really about healing. How do you regain your sense of self? And um, I myself am a 1.5 generation. And I've watched my older siblings, and especially my mom, wrestle with this trauma and how they come out of it. A lot of it is still unacknowledged. They would rather just forget about it. And as for me, you know, my background is in journalism. I'm fascinated by everyone's secrets. So I'm always trying to get it from them. And um, and then for the generations afterwards, I'm really writing this for them. I'm writing it for the two uh, generations, the three generations. They don't particularly, maybe don't even speak Vietnamese. They may not even be interested in their Vietnamese heritage. It just depends on where they are. But by reading this book and a lot of other books that are out, they will be able to get a clue as to why their grandparents, their parents, their uncles, their aunts, 
behave and think the way they do. Um, there are reasons for this. I'm not saying everyone is alike, but I'm saying after you've gone through a certain set of trauma, you will be triggered by the same kinds of things. Um, and this is just a window in, one window. There are many, many other windows that will be written in my lifetime. Mm. So, and thank you for you know sharing uh, a, a good glimpse of uh, your background and also, also um, giving us a glance of what we are going to talk about. So, which also brings the question of what does 1975 mean to you? What, what do you think of when that year comes up? You know, in many ways, I think of it as the year of my birth, even though I was born 10 years earlier, 1965. My family has a phrase, um, 1975, Juan it means everything changed. And we knew this because my mom went to a teller of fate and he told her everything would change. So we have been preparing for it. It did change, you know, I mean, the war ended, we found ourselves in Alabama and we didn't change. are huge, those three factors. But it's even in the way the air moves around your skin and the way you dress and what you eat and what you see. I was the only Asian in my class in Alabama all the way, um, all the two years I was there. And it does something to you to have gone from a culture when you look out into the world, everyone has black hair and everyone has olive skin. And I never thought about it because I just looked like everybody else. And then you end up in Alabama where you know, they were having the racial tension that they had. This is right after, uh, this is the 75, the civil rights movement just happened. And so I just found myself tossed into this alien land where I didn't know where I belonged. And it was so um, shocking that I remember spending the first year in Alabama almost mute. I just stood there and watched people. And I think that's why I'm a writer. Writers observe. And so I'm much more comfortable just standing still and being quiet and watching people than I am being in front of a crowd and waving a flag around or something. Mm, you know, that, that, that kind of like mimics my own childhood because <laughs> uh, growing up, I, uh, my family uh, settled in the Chicagoland area and I was in a mostly white suburb away from the city. Granted that mm -hmm. I did have access to, you know, the Vietnamese community on weekends when my parents would go there to shop. Uh, right. But growing up when you're one of the very few Asian kids with black hair I was a very tall kid too but I was which made me stand out and I was very shy I was really scared and in a way as you said I was also mute I could not talk mm -hmm. and I wouldn't remember crying all the time in kindergarten through yeah. fifth grade at some point so I would always cry when I felt threatened even when there really wasn't any threat so like if, yeah it doesn't have to be a physical threat it's right. an emotional sense of something is off that's yes. what it is and 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 you know as a child you can't put those into words all you know is you just feel like the odd person out all the time and after a mm -hmm. while it takes its toll i mean there are kids out there who can toughen it up and they pretend like it doesn't bother them and i've seen those kids and the facade of the bravado is there but even them deep inside something is going on and um you know so i to me i write for them you know there it is your story is on the page you're the youngest of nine siblings, is that correct? Yes, I am. Yes, and you know, coming or having your family escape from Vietnam, what was uh, that journey like for them having to make that escape? Because I do remember in another podcast interview through the Vietnamese Boat uh, People podcast, which I also highly recommend to anyone who is interested in learning about uh, the Vietnamese diaspora, you also talked about your father uh, being missing in action. Right. I um yeah, my first novel, Inside Out and Back Again, is loosely based on my life. And in it, I didn't change anything about my father or my mother, just as a tribute to them. You know, I don't know how to create a different father than the legacy that I grew up with. I was one, he became missing in action, and he's still missing in action as far as we know, because it's it remains in present tense. We have found out absolutely nothing more about him. Not that there's any committee in the world at all looking for him. 
um, he fought on the side that lost, and so his history becomes lost. That's just the way it works. Now, in Orange County, they do have statutes and tributes up to the men who fought on the south side, but that just came within the last five years, I would say. So, yeah, I grew up with this legacy, but the thing is, I didn't even know him enough or know enough about what happened to even be sad. I mean, it would be incorrect for me to sit here and say that I missed him every day and I cried. It's not true. You can't miss someone you don't know. So I know him through my mom's stories. I know him, I know him through old photographs. I know him through once in a while my oldest siblings who knew him would make a reference. But he's very distant. So that's my background. When you talk about uh, not feeling sad because, of, because you were too young to experience the gravity of your father's loss, but as a result of not having your father around, how do you think in some ways that really affected you as a person uh, growing up? And how do you uh, feel that has affected your uh, older siblings and your mother, who is now a widow, a single mother, uh, raising right. kids in America? Well, no, the, the worst part was raising, was a single mom raising nine children in the middle of a war mm. with six boys whom she was just petrified would be recruited into fighting right you mm -hmm. become a soldier so that's why she pushed them to study very very hard because if you are going to school you can bypass um, uh, um the military at least for a while so all my brothers none of them served in the military because she made sure they got into some kind of some college and uh so we are a, uh, an academic family not because we are so driven to be smart it's just survival this is one way to survive you study your way out of military service so with that as an example, naturally, I just, you know, I just went right into it. Um, so, I mean, education is important because we figured out in Vietnam, once our father became missing in action, you know, and then money was tight, that was the way to regain uh, status. So then we took that same legacy and repeated it here. How did it affect us? I think monetarily, the, the, the family uh, situation became very dire. You know, we were well off and then suddenly you weren't. It's just day and night. Uh, I saw my mother struggle. I've seen her work three jobs. I know that my older siblings all work to support the younger siblings so that they too can go to college. So everyone had a responsibility and everyone has a, had a role. Now me as the youngest, I did not have anyone younger than myself to help through college. So that's why I'm a writer. It's a privilege. And um, would I have been okay being an engineer? Absolutely. If I were one of the older ones, I probably would be an accountant. I love numbers. I just do. Uh, I became a writer because I could, because I could take time and, 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 and fail miserably for 20 years. I could take time and just say, you know what, if I don't make it, no one else is going to fail with me. It'll just be me. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's burdensome enough to try to be a writer by yourself. Imagine trying to be a writer when you've got two or three siblings counting on you to make it. It's just too nerve-wracking. So, of course, it wouldn't happen. So my older siblings, you know, they went to the traditional route. That One's a doctor, several engineers. Um, with, could they have been something else? Absolutely. It's just life, life sometimes doesn't give you exactly what you think you want, but I have to say they have lovely lives. So they have, I don't think there are that many complaints coming from them. Yeah. And so how have they reacted to the release of your third book or actually your uh, previous three books and have they read and what have their they, feedbacks been? They do. You know, the first book was so closely tied to me and, um, that they were, you know how it is, you read something and, and because they've known me all my life, it just wasn't that special because they're like, I know your story. Uh, the next one, listen slowly, they were like, okay, it's about a little girl going back to Vietnam again. It, you know, it, it was all right. It was, it's the third one, the butterfly yellow that got to them. That's the one. They said, that's my best work. And I have to agree. I spent more time on that book than anything, just crafting every single sentence and making sure the pacing was right. The suspense was there and really working on the, the humor. So I think I finally put out a book that my siblings, um, you know, recognize as being something special. In writing Butterfly Yellow, what was the premise, what were you, what was the process of writing this book like for you? Because I remember uh, when we talked privately, it took you about several years to write it, this it, particular book. It, it did take a long time. And, and, and Hung, the character, this, this girl who's been through trauma has been in my head for 30 years since I was a journalist at the Orange County Register. I went there right after college and I landed there in 88. 
And I remember starting to interview people in uh, my then very bad Vietnamese. It has gotten better. Um, and I noticed everyone was putting on a happy face. Everyone was having amazing lives. Everyone was going to Berkeley and UCLA and just flitting around and just as happy as they can be. But I just knew it wasn't true because they were trying too hard to convince me how lovely their lives were. I knew there was something going on that one, they were either not admitting to themselves and two, they were definitely not going to admit it to other people. So I knew whatever it was that was going on inside their minds, I wasn't gonna be able to get it as a journalist. Because, you know, as a journalist, you're splashing people's real faces on the front page and with their real names and their real stories right on the front page. And the story I wanted to write is just going to be much more nuanced and much more private. So then I went toward fiction. I just didn't know it would take me 30 years to get there because I'm just slow. I don't know, Chelsea. I'm just slow. <laughs> I mean, writing. And I, I have not written a book myself. There's a reason why I haven't written ones because... <laughs> The process is painful. It's torturous. And I also wonder, uh, authenticity was always a big deal for me because I want to write about my own parents, my mm -hmm. family story. But I also feel like there's going to be so much information being left out that I don't yep. even know yep. or the fear that I'm going to get it wrong and being discredited down the road like, you know, some authors have, you know, publicly. So yep. there is that fear and mm -hmm. there's a fear of trying to get it right, but also knowing that you yourself have not been the full recipient of that experience. Right. We get the aftermath of that experience, but not uh, the, um, the full frontal, uh, full scale view of it. So there's that. And I think when we're documents, I mean, those things, are into consideration and how do we well, navigate that i would say just trust your instincts you know you don't have to get it 100 percent right you're writing the story it's okay and then you can just try your best to quietly and slowly get to know not just what your parents are willing to tell you all the stories they're not willing to tell you and how do you get to that? A, a, a woman came up to me after one of my talks and say, she said she really wants to get to know her grandparents, but just how do you do it? Because they don't tell her anything. And I said, there's no magical formula other than to just be around. If you every day you're interacting with them and you're giving them back massages and you're bringing them tea and you're <laughs> paying attention, you're quiet and you're paying attention. It might make t it might take 20 years, but at some point they're going to reveal something that they didn't even mean to reveal because by yes. now second nature you're, you're just like um you're just like air they're just talking and there you are and that's when you're going to get your story you're not going to get it with a notebook in your hand and a pencil and staring at them and saying things like so what traumatic things happened to you on the way over right nobody's going to tell you anything no no. <laughs> no, I think it's about creating that space, the environment, as you just pointed yeah. out. Mm -hmm. uh, and Helen Zia, who is like a Chinese-American author, she said something when I saw her uh, talk a year ago when she was documenting stories of the Nanjing Massacre, which happened during World War II, pre-World War II era. And her mom, like, I think about 12, this book was 12 years in the making. Her mm -hmm. mom uh, was in her 70s. And then all of a sudden dropped the bombshell. And Helen was already a writer for a number of years by that point. And her mom basically comes up to her, do you really want to know the story? I'll tell you the story. And exactly. I mean, you, you're just kind of thrown out because it's so random. And I've had, I've had my moments too. Uh, I remembered yeah. there was a time when I talked to my dad and asked him about what had happened during the fall of the fall of, um, the Cambodian government, which led to the Khmer Rouge. And mm -hmm. his story was so vivid that I secretly had to record on my <laughs> cell phone because he was going on. Because after 10 minutes, I'm like, oh my gosh, now I got to document. There's no way I'm going to be able to process what would actually be an hour and a half right. of him talking nonstop. And that was, I think it's great. I think it's great no. that we have the technology now that we can slyly tape them. Now, are you going to put it verbatim into a novel? No. Are you going to splash his face on the front no. page? No. no. But everything he said, he said will inform your tone and your take on the story. And that's important. And that's about as authentic as you can get. You're getting right. first rate source right there. Right. So. It's in the archive somewhere. So that's yeah. kind of, I just quietly put it there. It's like, you know, at some point I may have to revisit it, but you will at the use same it. time, and at the same time, it's about my relationship with him. What mm -hmm. do I need to do to, you know, honor him and mm -hmm. honor my parents. And I know like when you're hearing your family stories, whatever they actually tell you, 
you keep it into consideration. It's like, okay, let me see what I can do for them down the road. And I think that's a very interesting uh, holistic approach uh, to writing, especially with something that is so deeply personal, even though it's fiction, but there's a lot of elements to it. And the character Hang uh, in Butterfly Yellow, you talk about her, uh, you talk about yourself being mute, very shy, and there's a lot of similarities to her character and your personal life. How much of it do you really see yourself in her? Not at all. She's completely made up. I mean, I've already written about myself in Inside Out and Back Again, and I'm really quite sick of myself because <laughs> I have been traveling around the country for eight years talking about myself, so I'm done. Uh, I was, I'm very happy to start talking about Hang, which is someone I, I just created. Um, you know, she's probably much tougher and much spunkier and much um, just much more of a survival than I ever was. I probably, I don't know how I would have, how, how I would have dealt with coming up across on a on a fishing boat we came on a on, on a navy ship so i just have a different situation and i never lived um in post-war vietnam where she did and you know i had my family to back me up every single day i was here trying to readjust and she did not and so but still she's out there she's she's going to make it and i purposely created someone who was absolutely not self-pitying because she doesn't have time for that there's so much else going on. She's got to get her brother back. She's got to get across Texas. Um, and she's going to do it without driving, without speaking um, um, adequate English. But she makes it because, you know, I've watched my mom raise nine children. You just, you just find ways. And so that's what I gave her. I gave her just tools of survival. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I purposely made her unbroken. She's going to come out of this. And by the end of the novel, you get a sense as to how she's going to come out of it. It won't be fast. She's just, it will be a slow, slow, slow process. And I'm imagining it'll take her a good 20, 30 years before she truly understands what happened to her. And also, what about her brother? Because her brother plays a big role in this book, too. Her brother um, and Hang have been separated for a number of years. And there's this this pull for her to reunite with her brother. Right. Her brother is younger, uh, very indifferent, um, already indoctrinated into the American culture by that point. Uh, what can you say about his character? Well, I wanted to show that, um, well, he's there for a purpose. He's there to give her the, 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 the motivation to jump onto a fishing boat and come across the sea. I think if he weren't here, she may not have gone. She might have lived, just lived with the communists. We don't know. But mm -hmm. I needed her to have an authentic reason to jump on the boat. And finding a brother to me seems like as good as it gets. Now, once she gets there, I, you know, within the first, um, uh, 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 within the first part, you find out that he's not going to be receptive. Why? He, he landed here at five. And he not only is brought to an alien land, he was brought into an alien family in the sense that he doesn't know anybody here. So his Vietnamese is not reinforced there were no photographs of his former family to look at. There was no one to recite stories with. And without that reinforcement, of course he's gonna forget. So I don't blame him at all. So by the time she shows up, she, who for the last six years has been dreaming and, and pining for him because why? She's been talking with her grandmother and all they do is talk about him. So the, his stories are reinforced. The yearning for a reunion is reinforced in Vietnam. In Texas, there was no one for him to even remember with. So of course he's gonna move on. And there's a vast difference in what you remember and what you, what is authentically your culture uh, from the age of five versus the age of 12. You know, Hung was 12 when it happened. So it makes perfect sense that she would go look for him and it, and it makes perfect sense in my mind that he would reject her at first because he's all about horses now and football, you know, it's just, you change you put yourself he was put in an environment and it changed him and it's okay it's okay from your wikipedia page that i did take a look at and also there was a quote from butterfly yellow the fictional girl huh, uh the fictional girl hang once says no one would believe me but at times i would choose wartime in saigon over peacetime in alabama what do you mean when uh she talks about that particular quote. Okay, well, that quote is from Inside Out and Back Again. Oh, my, my bad. Okay. <laughs> so sorry out. about that one. That's okay. And that <laughs> quote has to do with, you know, a 10-year-old who ends up in Alabama. And it was so shocking to her that she would almost prefer wartime in Vietnam, where she felt like she truly belonged. 
Now remember, war t- when you're inside a war, it's very different than watching it on TV. Mm-hmm. Yes, she was inside a war, but that doesn't mean bombs were going off above her head. Mm-hmm. She had a relatively happy childhood in Saigon and where she belonged. Again, it's this question of belonging. She spoke the language. She had friends. Her family had a position there. Everything was set up for her. She liked the food. She liked the, 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 the clothes she wore. She liked the, the, the climate. Um, you place her in Alabama, and it was more shocking than war. And so that's where that quote came from. And since releasing Butterfly Yellow, uh, what was the feedback you had received from the Vietnamese community? You know what? I am. I, I don't know. I mean, I've been reviewed in the Vietnamese community. I've been translated. Uh, I have friends on Facebook who reach out to me. But again, it isn't like I don't. It isn't just the Vietnamese community I don't know. I don't know any community. I live in a cave. This is what I do. It isn't like I have a thousand people I get feedback from. I don't know anything. You write, you release it out there. And um, I guess I should be more active on Twitter and Facebook and all that. It's just, it's not my thing. So, you know, it's just not my thing. And um, I'll just let my media team take care of it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, some writers love it. They jump out there and they get right in the thick of it. And they, they just want to interact with every single human that has read their book. I do that when I go on school visits. And so my crowd is more librarians, English teachers, students that's my crowd so if I meet you there that's where I'll meet you but otherwise I I don't know I have no idea how to how to this whole marketing thing is very baffling to me because (laughs) I didn't I didn't have to market inside out and back again at all it marketed itself and then listen slowly I didn't even pay attention to marketing because I was so busy writing Butterfly Yellow so Butterfly Yellow is really the first novel where I'm hustling for it I'm hustling to get it into right uh, readers' hands. So it's it's different, but you know, I just I do it. If I get an invitation, I go. If someone wants to teach my book, I go. I mean, it's just. But it isn't like I'm standing out in the street corner holding up my novel, saying "Read this, read this," with a chicken suit on. So. <laughs> that I, I I think that would be a great marketing. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll do it. I think put it on Instagram stories and Facebook Live. Talk to Paula. Uh, talk to Paula, who works on your team. Be like, okay, let's think of some way to shock people. Maybe go around uh, the Vietnamese town in and Argyle Street in Chicago, which you should visit if you ever get a chance when you're in Schaumburg. It is kind of a little bit of a drive, though, um, if you get there early I'm enough. I'm scared of Chicago. The same way I'm I'm scared of, of L.A. I don't go anywhere near those big cities. New York, I can navigate because it has nothing to do with a car. I know New York very well. I, I can, you know, I know every inch of it. So that doesn't intimidate me. But otherwise, I just, you know, the only time I drive in California is when everyone else is asleep. Which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So it has to be between 2 and 4 a.m. <laughs> do you see yourself wanting to connect with other younger or young older Vietnamese American writers? Because I feel like there's so many uh, that are starting to emerge and we're starting to see this trend as I was talking about earlier of, of uh, our own generation, the 1.5 second generation. I don't know if, we, if we're getting to the third generation quite yet, but eventually uh, we're starting to see more people wanting to share their stories, not just about their parents' journey or grandparents' journey, but their own challenges and their own uh, experience being uh, Southeast Asian Americans, Vietnamese Americans in this case. Do you see yourself wanting to connect with those communities? Because I feel that, uh, and I say this because as I was talking with other folks in our community, and I've done this to you know, the Cambodian Museum, is that hearing the stories of adult survivors from the Vietnam War, Laos Civil War, and the Cambodian genocide, they are now in retirement age. I mean, anybody right. who was 20 years old in 1975 is now 65 years old. And yes. again, time is not on our side with this. No. So do you see a push and do you see like a mission from your end to find ways to help support folks who want to tell their stories for the first time? It may you be done what? in a poet form or a poem form. It could be done in a short story, novel, storytelling. You know, I have, I've always believed but it, that if you want to write, you'll write. There are plenty of publications out there. 
Now, I don't know if they're going to be writing in English or if they're writing in Vietnamese. To me, if you're going to write, you're going to write and you will find your audience or not, but you will write. Um, and so I, I am, I think to get that perspective, you're talking more about a community activist or a literary activist who's there to corral and, and, and motivate people to tell their stories. I think that's great. And if I ever am invited to one of those events, I go. But otherwise, I'm just, an, I'm isolating on purpose. I can only manage my own head. And so I write, I live in this little world that I live in, and then I put it out into the world. And then, you know, whoever reads it, reads it. And, um, and if they find interest in it, great. And if they pass it along, that's even better. But I don't see myself as being a cheerleader for it because I don't know how I would have time to meet my deadlines and go on school visits and do everything else I'm supposed to do and also cheerlead. But I'm, you know what? I, I just have this belief that if you're going to write, you're going to write. And, um, and um, you know, there's, there's the uh, publication DVAN who, you know, um, um, champions Vietnamese American writers. So there are outlets for that. And, uh, and the people who run it are lovely. And so I think there are plenty out there, okay? unless I'm wrong. Yeah, because I know for <clears throat> to like write a book, people or to get a book published, what was that process like for you as far as like getting that whole process <laughs> of doing it, especially for someone who wants to write their book? It took me about 20 years. I, um, I'm, again, I'm a slow writer. I was a journalist first, and then I decided I did not want to write journalism. I will now sit down and craft my sentences. All that means is that you're going to go get an MFA and you're going to wait tables, because that's all it means. Um, and while you're waiting tables and working all the other little odd jobs that are out there in the world, because I didn't go the academic route. I didn't start teaching um, mm. I, um, you know, I, I worked an odd job here, an odd job there. I was an adjunct, but that's not the same thing as being in academia. Um, and then, and then I just, it just took me a really long time to come to a novel that actually worked on all levels. For 15 years, I spent time with an adult novel that just went absolutely nowhere. It was just way too convoluted. It tried to do way too much. And you tend to do that in your first novel. You're just way too ambitious at least for me, and it didn't work. And the voice wasn't authentic, uh, it just didn't work. So I'm very happy Inside Out and Back Again worked. And, um, but once I, I set that in prose poems, that's what did it. And, um, and so I think if you're gonna be a writer, there are two ways to do it. One, you can go the academic route. You can, you know, and there are many, many examples of that. You get published, you teach in an MFA program, it will sustain you while you keep publishing. So that's one way. And they're, you know, just go talk to anybody who's teaching an MFA program. They will show you the route. Or you can do it my way where you're just kind of like potlucking the whole thing. You know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. And what would have happened if I tried all these years and I didn't get published? I think I would have been fine. I would have, you know, I would have been a, I don't know, I dream of raising chickens, although I don't know anything about chickens. <laughs> so it's probably a good thing I got published. Um, and, uh, you know, I dream of starting a farm. I know absolutely nothing about growing anything. But, you know, I just have these ideas in my head. So this one worked out for the time being. You know, you don't know how long you're going to write. Just because you start writing doesn't mean you're going to write till death. Maybe you'll just stop. I have no idea. But I would say this to people. Writing is phenomenal, but it's not the end of all things. Mm -hmm. There are many other things going on in life. Writing is just one of the things. Yeah. And so if you don't take it that seriously to the point where it's life or death, I think you will actually enjoy sitting and crafting your sentences more. And, and the markets out there is absolutely unpredictable. So to tell yourself that you have to write well and you have to produce a bestseller or you, got, or you will be seen as a, a, yourself as a failure, I just think that is so harsh that it would stop almost anybody from writing. Write what you write, mm -hmm. and let's just see what happens. <laughs> just, you know, and it's okay. It's yes. all okay. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's very, that's such important advice that uh, young aspiring writers should hear, especially of color. I mean, 
we are starting to see the landscape change of how stories are being told. They're not told by typical old white researchers who have well, nobody no nobody will read those so yeah. no <laughs> no not at all no. <laughs> i mean that that yeah. time has changed and mm -hmm. thankfully so because i do think it's important that you hear people who have the secondhand uh experience and who are able to um, process it and be very thoughtful about those experiences and those are the stories that you want to hear and that to go into it with the idea like i'm gonna go ahead and sell a million books is is just the you know you might it can but why not let but, that be a surprise if you yeah. sell a million books then let it surprise you why sit there and expect it and then be disappointed right, right? Exactly. it just doesn't make any sense yeah inside out and back again has sold a million books it has because wow. it's being taught everywhere but that doesn't mean my next two novels are you know there's <laughs> no guarantee and you know what i'm perfectly okay with it yeah. I just, I'm very happy to have produced Butterfly Yellow. And then whatever it does is what it does. And then you just move on to your next project. So. And as you've gotten older, what was your relationship like with your mom? And, and what does she think of your own writing? My mother is a how poet. So that means in her generation, you create poems. She was brought up by, a, you know, they had, they tutor her at home. She had this very genteel childhood where they didn't want her mixing with the hooligans at the public schools. So they, um, they made sure she was kept at home. And uh, so she grew up always writing, but for a woman of her generation, she would, uh, at least my mother, she would never think about getting published because that's like being on stage, right? Mm -hmm. Life is not about that. It's about this kind of <clears throat> internal satisfaction. So she's always written so, and she would quote these lines to me, her verses to me. So I, I've always appreciated language in that sense to be almost floating through words is how I was brought up. Uh, she was constantly feeding me these verses. So my relationship with her has always been through language. And, um, you know, as you say, she just hit 90 and her mind oh. is starting to go. And, but you can see that, that the love of language is still there. So I hope when I'm 90, I'm still loving how words weave together. And we've always been close, but my mom is magical. She has nine children and she's able to have a different relationship with each child. Mm. Like for some reason, my brothers do not know that she writes poems. So wow. then I have no idea what she is sharing with my brothers that I don't know about. You know what I mean? I'm like, so one day we're going to have to sit down and talk and say, okay, what? But I do know that each of us feel like we're her favorite child. She's able to do that. And, no. um, um, you know, she's just, she's her whole, you know, everyone has, has, um, has a, um, um, a, a point that they go towards in life. And hers has always been to make sure her children are set up well for their life. And she mm. did it. And so she always tells me that uh, she's lived a, a very satisfied life um, at that. Uh, she got everything she wanted. And how many of us can say that? Right, she oh. came out of a war. Her husband's witnessing in action, and yet toward the end of her life, she's able to tell me, "Martin Wit," which means she's gotten everything she wanted out of life, wow. which is amazing. <laughs> Bless her heart. That is just incredible. <laughs> I'm glad that you know she has lived long enough to see um, <laughs> all of her children succeed and find their own pathway, and also to see her grandchildren. I was wondering what your relationship is like with your own. Uh, children and also with your nieces and nephews as with your books that have been published yeah. have they actually learned well for your nieces and nephews have they also learned about your work and what are their reactions and also your relationship with your uh with your children well i have one child she is a requirement if she's going to live in this house she has to read everything i write so, <laughs> uh, so she has as you know, it's not an option. Uh, for the longest, she started reading Inside Out back again when she was in second grade. It came out, and the little girl on the front cover looked just like her when she was in second grade, so she thought it was all about her. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, and then her eighth grade class this year just studied Inside Out and back again for like six weeks. And I showed up, and I talked to her class about it. So I think she's done with that book. She's been with it for a very long time. And she read the other two. And, uh, you know, to, it's so funny, like when I was growing up, my mom just quoted poetry to me. So I thought everybody's mom 
quotes poetry. I think somewhere in the back of her mind, she thinks everybody is mom rights, right? Because <laughs> that's what she has. So you just kind of take your worldview and you just kind of embellish it to fit the world. Um, as far as my nieces and nephews, none of them went into writing. Um, a few of them read. I'm not sure if any of them read seriously, but you know, it's okay. They each, they have their own interests. They are launching their lives. And I, I, I talk to them because I want to see how their brains work. You know, how does the second generation, what is important to you? How do you figure out how you, who you are and all that? Um, only a few speak Vietnamese and the rest wish they, they do, but somehow they didn't pick it up. And, um, but I think they have the basics, you know, like I've, I've always spoken to my, my child in Vietnamese and she answers me in English. So I know that she has the basics that if one day she, if she chooses to learn Vietnamese, she will be able to walk into a class and pick it up relatively quickly because she has the pronunciation right. Her tongue is in the right place. Um, but you can't make them speak it, particularly because none of their friends are speaking it. At this age, you run around and you're just talking with your friends and so you need it reinforced. Uh, so... I mean, I think we've given them enough of a foundation so that if any of the second generation should choose to go back to Vietnam and be an entrepreneur, they would be okay. They would, they would be able to launch themselves. But so far, no one has done it. Um, mm. They go there for vacations. And, um, and uh, you know, just the world is changing so much that the, the brain is different. Like when I was growing up, my mother made sure my handwriting was beautiful. Like I practice and practice and practice because it was so important to her that I had beautiful handwriting because it told, told people who you are. Now, nobody even picks up a pencil. Everything is typing, typing, typing. And I think yes. it's something lost. I have no idea. Is something gained. I have no idea. But I do know that they will be able to interact with robots better than I can. <laughs> you know? I used so. to have great handwriting too because I used to have very strong penmanship. I used to love uh -huh. writing on the chalkboard and I was like one of the very few people that could do that. But these days, the last few years, my handwriting has turned into garbage. I barely, I, it's almost hard to read. It's, I think doctors' handwritings are better at reading. At, 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 you know what? Yeah. It's okay. It's I okay. Just, People, people land where they land, and then you just work with it. It's fine. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so I tell that to young people a lot. There's nothing to be guilty about. Just wherever you are is wherever you are. Yeah. And so you've been back to Vietnam a few times, right? And also, what has that experience been like having to revisit uh, your home, your, fam your family homeland? And what are your thought processes and what are the uh, exchanges with local Vietnamese uh, folks? Well, I've learned that um, they don't consider me Vietnamese because my Vietnamese is slower. Although I can understand 100%. When I speak, I tend to speak too formally because I'm the youngest of nine children. So right. everyone else is a and or an ang to me, right? Yeah. I don't know anyone younger than me because I never had to and so I'm overly polite I'm slow and um, so they know immediately I'm from overseas and um, and I would say that they put on their best selves in front of me there's a facade going on I can't read the Vietnamese in Vietnam the way I can read people here like I can get past your facade here and start to guess as to what's really going on inside your mind but I can't quite do it in Vietnam yet because I don't know their secrets yet I, I, I can't, I can't nail it. And you know, the, the rule is for me, any story that anyone is willingly telling you, is just not even worth hearing. I'm sitting around waiting for the stories they don't want to tell. And I never got those. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> because I know that we had this discussion, uh, like off, off the record. And mm -hmm. you mentioned that a lot of times when people tell their own refugee stories, there's also a grain of salt too. Um, well, they have to. It's, it's called survival and it's also called vanity. Do you really want to sit there and describe to someone, maybe you know well, maybe you don't, just how dire and horrific it was those two weeks on a little ship, I mean on a little boat, you know, floating at sea? No, no, that is not what you want to talk about. You want to talk about how you got into UCLA on a full scholarship. That's what you want to talk about. You want to talk about how you beat out all the other Ivy League people and got a job at IBM straight out of school because it makes you feel good. 
And those are the stories that people tell. And I say, great. And I will happily listen to them. But I also want the other stories that they are not willing to tell. And so that just takes a while longer. So I think every human being, you know, you have to balance out the two extremes. If the stories are too good, I'm waiting for the other side. And, and mm. it will just take longer. It'll take much longer to get. Um, but I think that's just human nature. No one tells a story so that they can look like a villain or they can look pathetic or that they can look um, like a victim. All right. Unless they, they have a point to make with the victimization. But most of us tell stories so that we look good. And so yeah. as a refugee, having been through trauma, it's very hard to keep dredging up the stories where you are the sad one. Right. It would, it's much better to be the hero. So you're just going to go to immediately what happened once you start acclimating yourself to the new um to the new culture and how you started beating out everyone for scholarships, for this, for that, for jobs, for, for positions, for internships. It just makes you feel better. Um, but I would say that's not where the most interesting stories are. This oh, back there with the boat, but that's going to take a while to get to. Yeah. So looking into 2020 in the crystal ball, we're now um, going further. The January has just flown by already. What are you, looking to accomplish for this year? What are you looking to aim for? And then in the next couple of years, where do you see yourself uh, moving towards as far as being a writer, as a parent, uh, as a daughter, sibling? Well, I, um, I, I go home four times a year. My mom's in San Diego. So my sister and I land at the same time. We just spent bed with her. Um, so we go to my mom four times a year, so I will continue to do that. That's very important to me. And you never know what your mom is, what, you know, I never know what my mom's going to remember from one trip to the next. So you, you catch it when you can. Sometimes these authentic memories of her childhood will come out. And then the next time she won't even remember telling me, but it's there. So uh, I'll either use it or remember it somehow. And I'm on deadline for a sequel for Inside Down Back Again. So I'm writing that. And then I've got three other projects floating around. And then I think I'm going to do a big travel trip through Vietnam because I have an idea of what I want to mm. say about Vietnam and, and how I fit in. So that might, so that would be an adult um, memoir. And then I have an adult novel. And so that's six projects. And then I think I'm done. I don't think I need to write forever. And then I think I will be have very happily be done. I say that now, but you know, <laughs> two years ago, I had no idea I would have six projects in my head. So I, you know, you know, I say all kinds of things because I spend all day long making up stuff. So I'm making up <laughs> stuff and I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. So. Yeah, I think that being a writer, <laughs> it feels your curiosity. You're a very curious person. So I don't think that will ever settle down anytime <laughs> soon. So just giving a warning on that one. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, especially the way, uh, how curious you are and how much of an observer you are of, of people. Um, and also like one of the final questions is what, um, what would you like to say to, and I know that you've kind of uh, brought this up at certain points in our conversation today. What would you like to say to our younger Vietnamese generation to 10, 15 year olds, college age youths? What would you like to say to them? You know what? It's okay. Sometimes growing up with refugee parents, I'm not saying all the time. I'm just saying sometimes. Sometimes it can do a lot of guilt as to what you should be, right? There are all these things you should be. You should speak Vietnamese better. You should do this. You should do that. And all I can say is you should not be anything other than that what feels right. And it might take you 30 years to figure out what that is. And it's okay. Nobody has to mature on a certain um, timeline. You mature when you mature. And so I would say the one word that I tell everyone is just to relax. It's okay. Where you are is where you are. And what you do is what you do. Now, being in, is being an accountant any less or worse than being a writer? I don't think so. You're an accountant. The other person's a writer. So what? one is not better than the other they each will have joyous days and each will have horrific days that's just the nature of being alive so i think if i had figured that out in my 20s i would have been much more relaxed i was a driven um just i was i remember just feeling like a rubber band constantly stretched 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 thin all the time and it was about to pop 
And, um, and if I can alleviate that feeling for the ones growing up, I would do it just by simply telling them to relax and take a breath. Well, however you turned out is perfectly okay. Now, if you turn out to be a murderer and then, okay, okay, I'm not, go don't go there. I'm not saying do the same to me anymore. But, you know, relatively, most people are just very basically good. I believe that. And, and then they have to feel guilty because they're not achieving this and achieving that. Achievement itself, I question. Just do what you can do. Do what makes you feel good. And then I was talking to this woman the other day. She said she became a nurse, but she's always wanted to write. And I said, well, they're not exclusive. You can be a nurse and still write. Yes. It's fine. <laughs> you don't have to choose. And you don't have to write a million books. You just write the one book you want to write, which is probably your story. And that's fine, too. You don't have to look at other people's lives and wish for something. What you have is good enough. And I would say it's very good from what I've been looking around and seeing. You know, I mean... Just because you get book contracts to sit in your cave and write doesn't mean every day is glorious. It's, 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 it's you know, you, you turn into a different creature. I will say that my personality has completely 100% altered since mm -hmm. the days when I was a journalist. I'm just a different being from sitting alone so much. Is that good for you? Probably not. But I put myself in this cave, so here I am. Mm -hmm. okay. Excellent advice, and I really appreciate you sharing your experiences and wisdom to so many young folks who I hope will be listening to this. And also, where can people find you or where can people follow you? I know that you're not a big social media person. Oh, but I am on there. But you I are on there, though. That's how, uh, that's how I connected with you in the first place. I have a social media intern. She knows what she's doing. So... There she is. She posts things. I don't know what she does. She makes cute things. And she, she puts all my lists and awards into one graphic, and then she blasts it out there. She does things like that. I'm not capable of that. So I'm there. For some reason, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I've never checked my Instagram page because I, I don't know where it is. Um, but And then my website. So isn't that enough? So that's four. And then I'm on Goodreads. And that's, enough. that's five things. That's a lot. And uh, That's a lot. And for someone, you know, I, I'm not even, I'm just hopelessly private. Like if I could go back to the, you know, uh, 20, 200 years ago when a writer is just known by name and no one knows absolutely anything about him and it's usually a pseudonym, that would be great. If I could write under a pseudonym and no one knows what I look like and I never had to go anywhere, life would be glorious. But that's just not the writing world now these days. Yeah, yeah. And no. Thank you so much for being here on this episode. I really, really am so grateful to talk with you. I really enjoyed our conversation and I encourage anyone to pick up uh, the latest copy of Butterfly Yellow, which is in stores everywhere. You can find it on Amazon, what have you. I totally encourage uh, everyone to uh, pick it up and uh, spend some time reading it and also to follow the work of Tanha Lai on social media as we just brought up. So with that said, thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing your wisdom, your wittiness and humor. And it, it's, it's refreshing to me to listen to that. And I hope that people take something away from this uh, interview. And I wish you nothing but the best uh, in your journey as you promote this book and also working on your other current projects, which I'm so looking forward to uh, checking uh, it out. All right. Thank you, Randy. And good luck with this podcast. I will be looking for myself. As you mentioned, I will be the first one on. And then I will go back and listen to all the others. And then I will listen to all the ones going forward. Yeah. Best of luck to you on this podcast. Thank you so much, Tana. Have a good one there. You too. Bye-bye. 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 Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again, and looking forward to sharing more with you. <laughs>